Hey everybody, welcome back for another episode of the podcast from P-Town. Hope everybody's having another good week out there. It's getting quite a bit colder here. It's been below freezing, I think, almost all day today and pretty much yesterday too. Went out in the woods and got our Christmas tree over the weekend and it was good to see that there's a little bit of snow starting to accumulate up there in the woods. Like I've been saying, we really need uh, the snowpack this year more than ever so hopefully the storms will keep coming and it'll uh really build a snowpack up there in the woods so the farmers have some water to put on their fields this year uh going back to our new segment of uh listener emails for this week um well that's about the end of that now looking at the news um i think everybody has seen the the storms and whatnot that ravaged through Kentucky and Illinois and all those areas. That's pretty sad that, um, so many people lost their homes and that Amazon warehouse collapsed. Looks like it's going to take even longer for your Amazon stuff to get here. And the Amazon, it really kind of ticks me off actually, because you pay for prime and it used to be like prime one day shipping or something like that. Now you pay for prime and it still won't get here for another week and a half or two weeks. Um, it just, just as fast to send it regular anymore without the prime. Also, I was thinking about something this week, as far as the news goes, it seems like lately, a lot of things have been kind of like, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, like flash in the pan types of news stories, like the whole Omicron variant. I thought they were going to get a couple of good weeks or months, maybe even out of news stories on that one. And, you know, it kind of came up and then went away the whole, uh, Gislaine Maxwell going to trial and whatnot. You don't even really hear anything about that anymore, which a lot of the stuff I don't really care to hear about. I just think it's kind of interesting that, you know, these things that you think would be pretty big stories turn out that they're not reporting on them all that much. And like the conspiracy theorists say, maybe it is, maybe they're just trying to draw your attention away from what's really going on behind the scenes uh, just for that short amount of time. The Eagles had a bye this week, so there's nothing new to report as far as that goes. So yeah, it was a pretty slow week. I'm getting to that age though, because it seems like after I do the podcast, like the next day or two, that some big news story will come out, and I'll think that I need to talk about it a little bit. And then by the time I the week rolls around to where I'm actually doing the podcast, and I forgot all about that other one, I'm going to have to start taking notes or something of stuff that... Uh, I need to talk about or I need to get me a co-host on here that has a better memory than I do and uh, somebody to kind of throw ideas back and forth if anybody's interested um, hit me up the pay isn't great but the ridicule and things like that that you'll have to take from me are will be good so going into what we're going to talk about this week is uh, the U2 incident it's also known as the U2 crisis of 1960 and as we all know, 1960 was when the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union was still going strong. Um, the U.S. and the Russians, they were both trying to get information about each other without the other one finding out. And there was a little bit of, um, uh, I don't know what you want to call it. One site that I looked at said that the U.S. began flying spy missions over the USSR in 1956. 
But then another site says that we approached, uh, in 1958, we approached the Pakistani government about setting up a secret base inside their borders to launch the U-2 spy missions from. So that could very well be true. Maybe both things are true, that we were flying spy missions um, in 56, but in 58 is when we actually started launching the U-2s out of there. But the U-2, they chose it because it was flying at heights that were higher than Russian fighter planes could fly. And we also thought that it could fly higher than their missiles could reach as well. But as we'll find out, that wasn't quite true. So there was a facility in Bedabar, Pakistan. Um, it was also called the Peshawar Air Station. And the U.S. was able to use this facility. I think we actually used it up until it was abandoned in 1970. And I'm not sure what our relations were like with the with Pakistan at the time, but I don't really think they would allow to uh, help us in today's uh, international climate. But anyhow, it was a good site because it was located close to Russia, and we were wanting to check out their test missile sites and different things like that as part of our espionage tactics. The weird part about it is Eisenhower talked to the Pakistanis about letting us use this base, but then he said he didn't want to fly these missions because if one of our planes were shot down, it could be seen by the Russians as an act of aggression. So to ease us of having the burden, he ended up talking the UK's RAF pilots into doing the flights for us. And they would be using British pilots, but they would be flying the United States U-2. And since this was shortly after the Suez Crisis, which we had talked about, the UK wasn't in much of a position to not accept our request. So that way, you know, with the British, uh, if they were flying it and got shot down, we could say that we didn't know anything about it, although they were using our planes. But anyhow, the British, they flew two missions, but Eisenhower wanted a couple missions flown before the, there was the Four Powers uh, Paris Summit coming up. And the summit was scheduled for May 16th. And the two missions that they were going to do before the summit were going to be flown by American pilots this time. So on April 9th of 1960, the first uh, U-2 took off. And they're flying over a different, uh, over a few uh, different top secret missile sites. One of them that was interesting that they ended up flying over was called the Dulan Air Base. And this is where they, uh, the Russians had the, housed their Tu-95 bombers. And you should see a picture of these things. Look it up on Google. These things are huge. Um, I guess they're going to be using them for long-range bombings. And this plane, it was actually, they were first flown in 1952, and then they were beginning to be used by the Russian military in 1956 and are expected to still be in use up to 2040. So they're getting some life out of these suckers. But anyhow, they were about 155 miles into their trip when they were picked up by the Russian uh, air defense. And they avoided uh, several attempts by a MiG-19 and an Su-9 during the flight and um, were able to evade them. And so the, U, uh, the U-2 had ended up leaving Soviet airspace and it landed at an Iranian airstrip, which again, uh, we must have been on vastly different terms with these countries back then than we are today. But you would think that this would have been a sign that they were on to us. We were picked up on their radar or whatever, um, and we had to get away from their fighter jets. But nevertheless, on April 28th of 1960, another U-2 was sent from Turkey to Peshawar, uh, which I'm not sure why they keep sending them off from the same base, send the thing out of Turkey, if it's already there. Um, but they obviously, they didn't consult me on their ideas. 
So a guy by the name of Francis Powers was flying this one, and the backup pilot was Bob Erickson. I forgot to mention, he was the pilot of the first U-2 that we had just uh, talked about. But this mission was delayed, so Bob Erickson took the original U-2 back to Turkey, and they sent another one to Peshawar. And this one also got delayed because of bad weather in the Soviet Union. So a couple of things to note on this one. So the mission was delayed twice, which, looking back, it may have been a bad omen that maybe they shouldn't have done this. And also, why did they fly the U-2 back to Turkey and bring another one that... Um, they already had a perfectly good one already there, but they flew the one back and then flew another U-2 that was the same thing back to the place where they just flew the one back from. So um, I'm not sure what the fuel economy is on these things, but that's your tax dollars at work. So anyhow, on May 1, uh, the mission was finally beginning execution, and it was codenamed Grand Slam. And the purpose of this flight was to photograph some ICBM missile sites in the Soviet, Soviet Union. And also they were going to uh, get some photographs of some Cosmodromes, which is just a f fancy Soviet name for launch pads. They were also going to photograph an industrial site that was used for plutonium processing. And it seems the Russians had about six missile sites at the time that we were going to uh, photograph. And they were going to fly right over and then right over Russia, and then they were going to end up landing in Norway. And I think we have a lot of good relationships with Norway. But if you think about it, back in those days, right now, or so far up into this point in the story, we have Pakistan, Iran, Turkey, and Norway that are all basically kind of helping us out on these espionage missions. And all those countries are within striking distance of the Soviet Union. Um, if the Soviets found out that they were kind of aiding us in these situations, it may not have been uh, very good for them. And then if you also think about the first U-2 flights that we uh, did, they were using British pilots. So the Britain or the British, they couldn't very well deny that they knew what was going on either. But anyhow, this flight, it was expected by the Soviets, and they placed all their air defense stations in Central Asia on red alert. And like... I said it's not a real good spy mission if they knew that we were coming. So obviously the aircraft, it was detected, and the lieutenant general of the Air Force, a guy by the name of Yevgeny Savetsky, he ordered the air unit commanders to attack the violator by all alert flights located in the area of the plane's course and to ram if necessary. But luckily for the U-2 guys, they were flying at a high enough altitude where the Soviet aircraft were unable to reach them, like we said before. And additionally, they were out of range of the Soviet SAM missile sites in, that were in the area. But unluckily for them, there was a SAM site that the U.S. had discovered the previous year when Nixon had visited the country. They had just found out about it, but maybe it hadn't gotten passed down to the military yet or to the CIA, whoever was flying these missions. And this site was being operated by a guy named, by the name of Mikhail Voronov. And he ended up firing three SA-2 guideline missiles. The first one hit and took the plane down. Um, and an interesting side note, the SA-2 guideline missile was the NATO name given to this missile. It was known as an S-75, I guess, to the Soviets. But irregardless, it ended up uh, getting a direct hit and uh, taking the U-2 uh, down with one shot, it sounds like. 
Oh, and one other thing, too, about these missiles. They were actually first deployed in 1957, and it came one of the most uh, widely deployed missiles in air defense uh, history. It was uh, first successfully used on October 7th of 1959 when it shot down a Taiwanese plane over China. And that plane, it was flying at about 65,600 feet when it was hit. And the one that shot down the U-2 was the new and approved version that could hit planes at even a higher altitude. But anyhow, like I've been saying, our plane was shot down uh, near a place called Cosolino in the Ural region. And Powers, who was piloting the plane, he forgot to disconnect his oxygen hose. And he fought with that for a while. Uh, or when he ejected, he forgot to uh, take off his oxygen hose. But it finally broke, which um, that would have been pretty bad if the thing hadn't broken. And someone arrived at the crash site to see the plane lying there with a guy lying beside it with his oxygen hose still connected. But he ended up opening his parachute and he landed safely but he landed on Soviet soil. And then he was quickly taken prisoner by the Soviets. And now for some real spy stuff, this Powers guy, before he left, he had a modified silver dollar that had a needle in it with a toxin. Um, so he was going to bite down on the needle or something, or bite down on that silver dollar, and then the toxin would inject in his blood bloodstream, and it would end up killing him. But he didn't end up using it. And the guys uh, captured him and took him prisoner. And additionally, one of the fighter jets that was chasing him was also hit by a missile and destroyed. I think it was one of, remember, they fired three missiles and one of them was a direct hit. I think the Russian fighter jet was also hit by one of their missiles. Um, and the pilot of that, of the fighter jet, ended up being killed. So, obviously, the United States are wanting to try, try to cover this up, and NASA released a press report about four days after the pilot went missing. They even had a U-2 painted with NASA colors to look like it was them that was doing this. And they also said that they'd received radio from the pilot that he was having oxygen difficulties, which um, he was probably having oxygen difficulties when he forgot to unhook his hose. But the U.S. government, they decided they were going to stand behind uh, NASA with a cover-up story and say that the plane was destroyed and that the pilot was killed, that he ran into oxygen difficulties up there in the sky or whatever, and he ended up crashing the plane and ended up being killed. So this whole thing, it kind of put Eisenhower in a quandary because the first report stated that Eisenhower didn't know anything about this U-2 flight and that that would mean that he didn't have control over his military. But on the other hand, if they said Eisenhower did know about this, then it would create problems for him at the, uh, the upcoming summit. And on the other side of the world, Khrushchev, he was announcing that a spy plane had been shot down over the Soviet Union, but he didn't announce that the pilot was captured and still alive. So the U.S., they continued their story that it was a NASA weather plane and not a military aircraft, and they continued with the story that the pilot was killed in the crash. And like I would said, they continued with the whole oxygen story, and uh, they even grounded all the U-2s for a time to have the uh, oxygen systems checked on them, which they were functioning fine, but it was all part of their cover-up story. But a few days later, Khrushchev ended up revealing the rest of his story that he hadn't told anybody. He claimed clean that the pilot had been captured. And so the U.S. was ended up being caught in their lie because they knew that the pilot had been captured. 
And the Russians knew that the pilot had been captured, but they had told the U.S. people all along and told everybody basically that the pilot had been killed. So it always comes back to bite you in the end. So with this information, uh, Khrushchev, he was able to embarrass the Eisenhower administration about the cover-up. But Khrushchev, he was also allowing Eisenhower a way out. He was stating that the U2 incident was the responsibility of the CIA director, Alan Dulles. And when Eisenhower received this, he said uh, that he wanted to resign over the whole thing. But Dulles ended up uh, coming up and taking the fall for it. They opened up to a congressional leadership team about all the U-2 flights over the last four years. He said that they were engaging in aerial espionage from a presidential directive, but he downplayed Eisenhower's role in the flights. So Dulles, he kind of took the fall for it, but he also kind of, uh, you know, he kind of said that it wasn't, or Eisenhower wasn't totally blind to what was going on and that he actually directed it. But Eisenhower, he was still facing domestic turmoil over the whole incident. The press was saying uh, that Eisenhower couldn't control his own administration. And so finally, on May 11th, he came clean about the whole thing. He he accepted the responsibility for it and said that espionage was vital for the American people and that basically the Soviets needed to look at themselves because they were engaging in espionage as well. And as you can imagine, this affected the Four Powers Summit. Uh, talk started on May 15th and ended the next day. Tensions, they were pretty heavy before and during the summit, and Khrushchev had said that the secret spying had doomed the summit even before it began. He also rescinded his previous invitation for Eisenhower to visit the Soviet Union. And um, like I said, or like Eisenhower said, you had to kind of agree with him because the Russians, they were doing the same thing. They just hadn't been caught at it yet. As for Pakistan, they were notified by the Soviets that they would become a target for Soviet nuclear forces. Um, the Pakistanis, in turn, they said that they were in the dark about the whole U.S. or about what the U.S. was doing there. This also started causing the beginning of the strained relationship between the U.S. and Pakistan. Powers was found guilty in his trial in Russia. He was found guilty of espionage and he was to serve three years in prison and seven years of hard labor. But he was actually finally released almost two years into his sentence in exchange for a Russian spy that we had captured by the name of Rudolf Abel. Abel was a Soviet spy. Uh, He'd been imprisoned in the United States since 1957. And the exchange, this is just like in the spy movies too, the exchange took place on the Glynicki Bridge, which connected Potsdam of East Germany to West Berlin. And it seems, though, in a couple of the accounts, the missile, it never actually was, uh, it never actually hit the U-2. The most accurate one says that the missile exploded behind the aircraft and ripped off its wings. And they said if the missile had hit the aircraft, the pilot wouldn't wouldn't have survived. Kind of like the missile that hit the MiG that was chasing it. And that's pretty much the end of what I have for this thing. This one's... uh, was kind of an interesting to research there's quite a bit of different information out there some of the information didn't always uh line up with each other but it's kind of neat the whole um you know passing the spies back and forth and him having the little silver dollar thing that he could bite on um to kill himself just like they have in the spy movies but anyhow um 
like I said, that's it for this one. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, go out there and follow me on the podcast from P-Town Facebook page or P-Town Podcast on Instagram. Send me an email at ptownpodcast74 at gmail.com. And that's it for this one. Uh, if you guys start sending in some listener emails, I'll have more to cover in that section. So, uh, oh, and go out there and give me a rating on Apple iTunes. So we will see you guys on the next one. Thanks a lot.